Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. What kind of master is it that this very moment sees colors with the eyes and hears voices with the ears, that now raises the hands and moves the feet? I didn't really prepare this Dharma talk, but Dharma talk sort of came to me uh, in a way piece by piece during Zazen, because I'm sort of busy doing the Jisha job, then maybe for better, uh, for the better, it was that I didn't write down exact scenario that I'd say, but rather and when sitting in Zazen, uh, bits and pieces would come, and I was like, oh, wow, that's good. I'm going to say that. <laughs> and, uh, and even this text that I just read uh, also came that way. So uh, this is the text from very significant to me personally uh, that I... Uh, worked with, with Ada Roshi, who was the founder of this monastery. And uh, he told me when I found this text, and I, I told him in Dokusan that this text that's like sort of sheds a lot of light on what I've been struggling with, but now suddenly I see that it's not as, uh, not as, impenetrable as, as I thought it was. So he said, read, read this text 100 times. <laughs> so, so I thought, how am I going to uh, keep count? <laughs> so I made this sheet. <laughs> uh, this is uh, 100 uh, check, check marks. So, but I wouldn't say that I fully understand the text even now. So, but I think the idea is that what kind of master is seen uh, with these eyes and hears with those ears is that it's a question that we hold. And in fact, Basumi, who is the, uh, the one who first asked the question, who wrote this text, uh, he was asking that question in Japanese. It goes, Korenanzo, Korenanzo. What is it? Uh, he, I heard that he, when he was dying, he was on his deathbed and surrounded by his disciples. And his last words were, Korenanzo. <laughs> and he says, if you read this text, uh, it says in it that, if you keep working at it, and especially at the moment of death, if you ask that question, then in the next life, 
it would be so easy. You just reach the opening <laughs> and find. But uh, I, I want to say, first of all, that I'm so honored to be here and that uh, I'm really kind of speechless, although I have to speak, that uh, Shingeroshi asked me to give this talk and I want to thank her for uh, our beloved teacher for uh, guiding us on this path here and, uh, and taking over from Eido Roshi, who was a, a great master in his own right. And to be able to continue this practice is really remarkable. So I thank you. Can everybody hear me? Okay, sorry. Well, one of the main teaching methods of Ada Roshi was Mu Shaolin. Mm -hmm. So I remember coming here for the first time in 1982. It was a Memorial Day session. And Ada Roshi told me to go out and shout in the woods. But I was very shy and introverted. Maybe I still am, but he so okay, so he said, go out and shout. So I went out into the woods and I looked around to see if nobody's watching. <laughs> and I uh, shouted. And, yeah. Later on it became sort of an obsession and I was shouting a lot, but uh, so so <laughs> I'm able to produce a loud voice if necessary, but usually my regular tone is uh, very low. So I'll try to speak loud. But uh, I wanted to begin my story. Uh, back in Poland was uh, when I was a little boy and maybe teen young teenager, 12 year old or something. And I had been very introverted and very shy uh, all my life, and, but especially in, the, in my childhood and feeling extremely alienated from, separated from the world uh, to such an extent that I prefer to be sick than to go to school because going to school was very painful. Very, uh, my alienation was... Uh, brought to an um, acute level when I was surrounded by a lot of other kids. So getting sick was like, oh, thank you. I, I can now stay home and not have to deal with the, with the others. So, uh, but I found refuge in books. Uh, I read a lot. And uh, in fact, I read an entire encyclopedia. <laughs> every you know, item in the encyclopedia. So I was like so hungry to be in contact with the world, but, uh, but I, wasn't, I didn't know how to, and I was somehow not able to. But a little ray of light appeared when my parents gave me a movie camera when I was 14. And I remember the first movie I, made was of my building, uh, which, which I just 
recorded. I remember it was a, a late afternoon sun and was casting an interesting shadow on the windows. And I was like, this is the first time I see this building. I haven't really paid attention before. Like it was the link to the outside world, but with the help of the camera. So kind of later on, I became a filmmaker. So that was probably the beginning of this. But so alienation and trying to overcome alienation is kind of the story of my life. And uh, uh, it, it had a major, maybe I should, uh, first I thought, <laughs> first I thought because uh, mm, my parents, my father was a doctor and he got a job in Tunisia. So I was like, oh great, I'll be able to get rid of my, uh, this thing that I thought was defective in me by going, changing the environment. So my family moved to Tunisia, which is, uh, I don't know if anyone has been there, but it's a beautiful place on the Mediterranean. And I, I went to school, uh, like this exclusive boarding school, and I was so unhappy. <laughs> it was like the same situation, but in a different, prettier and more uh, you know, exotic environment. But I brought the same pain sort of with me to that sort of paradise. So I, I lived there for three years and then we moved to this country. This was 1972. And uh, I thought, again, I thought, well, the United States, <laughs> there has to be a change in me somehow because, you know, it's a, uh, the greatest superpower and anyway i arrived and at first really it was amazing uh i remember driving from jfk to um manhattan towards manhattan and at first it was and the cars were so big <laughs> everything was like overwhelming but in a good way i thought and then on the horizon beyond the horizon suddenly these uh, Manhattan skyline began to emerge. It was like the Emerald City. <laughs> it was a miracle, really. And I thought, oh, now I'm home. Now this is going to solve all my problems. <laughs> and uh, uh, but in the first few weeks or so, we were fine. But then, then I we were immigrants, so I had to find a job. <clears throat> and I found I was lucky. My friend found me a job in Columbia University Medical Library. So, but again, I felt like I'm feeling, I'm falling into the same alienated state. And in fact, uh, maybe the, my boss noticed that and he put me to work in the stacks, like in the basement. <laughs> so, <laughs> So they gave me the nickname, the mole. <laughs> because I never came up. I just, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but around that time, I found a, a book fell into my lap. It's, it was called How to Meditate by Lawrence Lechand. 
And this book was, so I'm reading this book. I didn't know what it was about because I didn't know the concept of meditation. I thought it meant how to think. But okay, so the author says, okay, now reader, stop reading. Just sit down and count your breaths. So I remember at that point, I was like, so unhappy. And so I felt like this giant stone was weighing on my chest and it was getting heavier. Every day it was getting heavier. So then uh, going back to the book, I, I decided I have nothing to lose. So I'm going to try this breath counting. And I, uh, he recommended counting to four, not like here to 10. So I did one, And I did it a few times and I, I lied down. I remember I was doing it lying down and I remember this stone that was on my chest was beginning to lift and like it sort of rose up to the ceiling and disappeared. And I was really astonished because nothing, I tried drugs before sex, everything, all those things and nothing really worked. But this uh, practice, uh, work. It was a miraculous uh, revelation, but it wasn't like I was done with the job of freeing myself. It was just the beginning. And then I, I went back to, one day I went back to the, my job and in the stacks I discovered there was a, there were all these medical books because it was a medical library. But one of the books was, was orange. It was different. And I I pulled it out from the bookshelf on the shelf, and it was uh, by this man, Chogyam Trungpa. <laughs> and it was called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And I started to read it, and I was, I was floored. I was really like suddenly someone was speaking directly to me. Like I discovered that maybe the world is not such a bad place. <laughs> reading this book. So I, uh, I stole the book. Because <laughs> <laughs> I figured these people don't read it in dark first. <laughs> they don't need this. So many years later, like maybe 20 years later, I, I went, I smiled. <laughs> I, I returned. Uh, but, um, at that time, I, uh, so I became, actually, I became a student of Chogyam Trungpa, who is, uh, for those who don't know, he's, uh, if we go to the meeting room, he's in the picture, I just saw him, in the picture surrounding Eido Roshi with all the other Roshis, and he's the only one looking different because he's Tibetan, and uh, he was here at the beginning of this monastery. At the inauguration. But in any case, so I, I went to his monastery, which is located in Vermont, and it's called the Karnacholing, because uh, uh, they had a kind of session, but it's not as intense, but it's close. It's called Datun, and it, it's uh, one month long. So you do a lot of uh, uh, meditation of zaz like zazen and uh, 
but for four weeks. So I remember on the third week, something happened that really uh, sort of like blew my mind and sort of like changed my life, I have to say, because they instructed us to breathe out and then kind of stay there, breathe out and stay there, breathe out and stay there. And so, but it was kind of boring. And so I had to like, I had to make it more interesting. So I, I imagined that I'm a cannonball and, I'm, and there's a big cannon and I'm like going out like that. And uh, so then I'm doing it and suddenly after one of those breaths, out breaths, I realized I'm nowhere. Like I sort of stayed uh, in the space or in fact, then I realized to my astonishment that I was uh, no longer there. Like, where was I? Like I looked for myself everywhere and there was no me there. So I was really shocked. And then, and then I sort of like investigated the situation and uh, I realized that all the people there were, they were like shining, like in a way they were like my brothers and sisters, all of them equally. I didn't have any preference. This one is, I like this one, I don't like that one. They were all equally the same. Equally, I could give my life to, of, I could die for any of that. I felt like, I really feel that, felt that sense of um, uh, such intimacy that it's more than intimacy. Like, no difference between me and them, but I'm not even there. So like, it's just like, I can only, there was like pure sort of, uh, but anyway, there was no suffering. So for the first time in my life that I remembered, there was zero suffering. So then I thought, uh, mm, also this whole new world view that revealed itself, I thought everything that I learned up to that point, all the books I've read, all the all that information that in schools and other places, that was all wrong. It was all, it was all wrong information. Um, I was being fooled all these years by all this, you know, uh, what the world thinks is true is not true. So, um, so I thought, okay, now I'm gonna have a new life that in this, on this new basis of this, new way of seeing and I thought this would be like no no war no no misfortune no this would be like bliss uh, for the rest of my life but uh, maybe after like half an hour or so <laughs> I noticed that there's like an inkling of me coming back <laughs> and I was really like that was very uh, disconcerting and then this me 
So there was zero suffering, zero me, and then 2% me, 2% suffering. It was exact proportion, 50% me, 50% suffering. So then me came back and I was, it was uh, tragic, really. I felt like, um, but at least a window was open and closed, but still, you know, when you see uh, your lover or somebody you love or your mother, and then suddenly it's blocked, then it's a very, um, you're, it's a sad, it's a, it's a something really mm, painful about that. So, so in a way it was like a, blessing and a curse, this experience, because then I would always try to recapture it. And uh, I was going like, how did I get to that point? And then try to reproduce that, and it never worked. So, yeah. But uh, Chogyam Trungpa, in one of his books says, um, march directly into disappointment. <laughs> Make it your way of life. It was uh, not such a great consolation, but it was fun. <laughs> um, so then, uh, somehow, I uh, somebody invited me to Shoboji around that time. It was like 1982. Maybe. Somebody invited me to Shoboji, who was a practitioner there, who I met in a Chinese calligraphy class. And uh, so I, I went to Shoboji for the first time and I was blown away by the aesthetics, uh, by the incredible beauty and austerity, like clarity. Because Tibetans have a different sense of uh, aesthetics. It's more like ornate and all colors are very bright orange, red, blue, gold. And here it was black, white, a little wood color and green, dark green, and that's it. And everything, the harmony of everything was somehow, I feel like this is my home rather than you know, the other place. So I, I decided to do a, a weekend session at Shoboji. And I remember the pain in my knees. <laughs> it was horrendous pain in my knees, but somehow I survived. But Eido Roshi was, uh, it was amazing that I could see him in Dokusan. Because in the Tibetan tradition, like I never really, so um, Chogyam Trungpa in person, like I saw him when I was in this with other people with him, but never one-on-one. -on -one. There were people that he worked with one-on-one, -on -one, I'm sure, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't do that. So, but here, Eidoroshi, suddenly I was in the same room with the Zen master and, and he wanted to know how I'm doing. <laughs> so, so that was really incredible and anyway so I switched my allegiance and 
a week later, a week later was a session here at DBC. So I signed up right away. And it was uh, uh, in May, it was called Memorial Day. Now it's, uh, it's a different name, Nyogen Sanzak. Right? So, uh, so as I said before, Eberoshi asked me to shout move. And uh, I, um, that was a definitely a liberating experience that session I'll never forget. Uh, also a lot of pain and, uh, but I think the, the beauty of the surroundings, all the supports, supports, okay, there's pain, but somehow this makes it okay. Uh, because the astonishing beauty uh, constantly, you know, you just, uh, it's amazing. Which brings me to um, this um, text by Basu. Uh, what is, what kind of master is this that is um, seeing through the eyes? So, um, well, I'm visual artist, so I'm, I'm focusing on seeing, but other people might say, what kind of a master is it that is hearing, like a musician would be particularly sensitive to hearing and uh, someone else, maybe tensor sound, potentially of taste, you know, but the master is operating through all these senses. So, um, so I, I have a life, you know, uh, in the, um, where I went to school and studied painting and then video art, then filmmaking finally. But, but um, okay, before we go into this, let's have a drink. <laughs> this French poet, uh, Malarmé said, Seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. Seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. So, uh, studying drawing, for example, uh, when you want to draw, draw someone's face, you have to forget that this is the nose, these are eyes, because we have words for those uh, parts of the face. We have words. So when you want to draw, you, you draw the symbol. Nose is like this and eyes are like almond shapes. But an artist who sees uh, has to forget those names in order to render it uh, accurately. But then you say, oh, wow, this, how did he do that? But he simply forgot that this is an eye, and this is a mouth. Uh, so, I, uh, I, I, for me, this is, was another way in which I overcame the alienation. I was to penetrate through the thick layer of uh, words and names and for, uh, names for everything. There's a name and. So that's kind of like a blocking mechanism for us to really see. So um, one good way to, for example, now if you look around, everything is a name, but 
there are some nameless things among those that have names. Like in the face, you know, there's an area where there's the cheek, but somewhere between the mouth and the cheek, there's some area that has no name. So if you want to draw some, everybody can draw, I believe, but once you forget that, uh, what those things are, then you'll be able to draw anything. So here, like, I'm looking at the altar that I see in between uh, the uh, Buddha and the uh, candle holder, there's this, there's this space, kind of looks kind of like a fish, but it has really no name. So if I drew that, and then I draw all the things around the Buddha that have no name, and slowly come towards him and draw not the nose, but those nameless parts of the face, etc. Eventually, without even trying, I will have drawn an exact and maybe beautiful, at least accurate portrait of the Buddha, not knowing how to draw, just forgetting the names of those things that we know. So I uh, sometimes, once I learned this, I had a kind of key to, to the visible world. Uh, but uh, interestingly, uh, the visible world outside, I think I discovered that for the inner world, the same principles you can apply. In other words, forget the names. Like if you look at sort of inner landscape and there is a tendency to call everything by their name or attributes, names. Uh, and But like I sort of developed a process that I uh, taught some, some of my friends because uh, often people go to museums and they are... Uh, we don't really spend any time looking at art, but they just glance, you know, skim over uh, a great artwork that has so much to offer and people miss all that because, because they don't have uh, mm, the skill to stay with it, stay with it, because it takes, it, it takes stillness to, to be able to see whether inward or outward uh, from my experience and see that if I'm still with something that is uh, even problematic, like for example, nervousness about this talk, I became really nervous and then I said, okay, just be still and, <clears throat> and sort of do this, this churning kind of uh, emotions, waves. So I just let it be and it comes down after a while. But if I try to think about it, then I would get more and more nervous. So, uh, so in the outside so-called external reality, uh, for example, when you go to a museum and look at a painting, then just be still for a little while, be still with, and it will reveal itself to you uh, also, the eyes have to be not scanning like this, but 
I still relax and still and and wait. Wait. At first, there is trepidation. At first, uh, you feel because it's something I don't know. It's something in us that maybe it's a fear of giving up something. Like the the um, there's a there's a fear. I feel it myself. Fear of really being still with something and really look. But if you overcome this fear, because the eye starts to shift around, like the scanning. But if you still the eyes and look and wait and allow it to come towards you, then a moment of intimacy may happen. And uh, you'll be seeing more and more and more things as the longer you look, if it's a rich artwork. And it will, at least that's my experience, it kind of uh, works on your inner state. So you can, well, I was used, I have been using uh, paintings especially, but I guess any landscape, tree or anything can be used to, as a tool, speaking of tools, as a tool that can bring peace and even bliss sometimes or overcome turmoil. Like one time uh, I was heartbroken. Uh, my girlfriend said that this is it. And suddenly, and I was really, mm, really, really upset and really suffering. And I didn't know what to do, so I, I went to the museum, Metropolitan Museum. And I remember I went with a friend, but then I let him go, and I just stayed with one or two paintings by Philip Guston, the one of you but not the late Guston, but early with the abstract. Uh, and I stayed with it, and after three hours of staring, <laughs> I was cured. This uh, <laughs> heartbreak was gone. At least, you know, I got great relief. So, but I looked in that way where I, you know, my eyes still and I really let it come to me and feel those colors, amazing. Uh, just the energy from the painting filled me and, and cured me. Paul Cézanne was a great French painter, and he painted a lot. He painted a lot outdoors, uh, actual uh, scenes around his house in the Provence region, and uh, he he said he set up his uh, canvas, and he said, "I will not." start the painting until I see God. <laughs> In other words, he looked at the scene and there was a um, shift. 
he no longer saw this is called the tree, this is called this, but he saw in a he faced the inconceivable, like Daito Kokushi recommends. Uh, and then he would start painting, and a revolution in art happened because of that. So it's a very creative uh, way to be, and the words are sort of blocking our way. I mean, words are, of course, we are using words all the time, but to balance words with no reality that transcends word. I guess I'm stating the obvious. <laughs> because, uh, this um, ability to see is very precious because I realized uh, not so long ago, I, my vision became cloudy both eyes and like I wasn't able to even look at the computer and like recognize the characters. So I went to the doctor and he said, you have cataracts and we have to remove them. And no, I'm not sure if that was the reason, but he, they changed the lenses in my eyes. They replaced the old lens, which was yellowish and you know cloudy, they gave me new lens. So uh, it was kind of astonishing. I was staring at the doctor with my eyes open, and they were replacing the lens. It was like so. Then made me think about vision and seeing how temporary and precarious and it's not to be taken for granted in other words it can be with one move of her hand she could have destroyed my vision and uh, but she she put this new lens and then i saw the world uh, as if new like uh, it was i could before everything was kind of cloudy and after the surgery, this procedure, I was able to see every leaf on a tree. So suddenly like all the colors, because with my previous set of lenses, the, um, the blue became not so blue, it was orangish. But now I could, I could see this brilliant blue. But that also makes uh, made me Think about rel how relative that what I thought I took it for granted that I'll always see, and suddenly I realize uh, it's temporary, it's another aspect of impermanence. And recently, <laughs> this is another uh, area, but they removed some of my teeth here, so I have like a gap in my side of my mouth now. They're going to put implants after a while, but at this time there's like a gap. So I have to chew it one half of my mouth. <laughs> the other one is sort of, I sometimes food goes there and I chomp on it, but there's no, that normal, you know. Uh, so 
Okay, so I realize we are falling apart. Uh, <laughs> piece by piece, we're losing pieces of ourselves. And our senses, uh, for example, people with COVID and people sometimes have COVID and they lose the sense of taste and smell. And that's very disconcerting and very can be extremely disturbing. To lose a sense, one avenue in which the master is communicating is uh, is blocked. So, um, which brings me, I would like to speak a little bit about my mother, who died in two thousand three. She had cancer, and uh, um, she she had a kind of awakening before she died, which is sort of apropos of what we are discussing, because she, all her life, she was a very political person and very a fighter, extremely angry at the political situation in Poland, because uh, she was forbidden to write by the government in Poland. And she held this tremendous anger and um, frustration. And so that's the reason why I'm, we came to this country actually, because she wanted to, uh, to breathe freedom you know, and speak and write what she wishes, what she wished. And she uh, became eventually, she became, um, editor at Voice of America. So she became the voice of this country. <laughs> Whereas over there, they prevented them from speaking. Uh, so, and she accomplished her goal, which was to remove communists from power in Poland. And they, they were gone. So she, my mother got a gold medal from the new government. <laughs> so, but uh, sometime later, she developed this cancer and was really um, deteriorating. You know, it took some time and she had time to think. And she was a thinking person. And she, <clears throat> she, um, she was thinking, what is the meaning of life? I imagine. Often she would be in her wheelchair and kind of like, like this pondering, pondering. Like her love of politics and those worldly affairs was, uh, she was questioning whether that involvement, what it meant. Is there something else? Because she was not exactly a believer. So she probably thought this is it. And what was that all about? So one day she was in her wheelchair and she called me over to where she was and she said, and she took a piece of lemon rind and she like squeezed it so it, that spray came out. And she said, smell this. So I was like, isn't it amazing that the smell of this 
lemony kind of fra fragrance. And uh, from that point on, she became like, uh, she, her light began to shine. Whereas before it was like, you could tell that she's, light is disappearing into her. And now she started to shine. And she was not just, everything became alive for her. Like somebody would give her flowers and she said, these flowers are amazing. <laughs> she couldn't believe, or the beauty of people's faces. Or I remember I went to visit her and she said, the only thing that matters is love. She said it in English. Interesting. I usually spoke Polish. But, uh, so those were the last words of her that I remember. So the only thing that matters is love. Yeah. So then she died, and I I was left with this. Mm. The question, question about around the issue of dying mortality, and I I resolved to make a film about that. And at that time, there was my friend John, who Roshi met. Uh, he also. His mother died, and he also likewise wanted to make a film. So we decided to make the film together. So we resolved to not to include in the film any doctors or family members or caregivers, just simply the people who are on the verge of dying. So we found five people that were willing to be present with us, with our cameras. We would go visit those people and just hang out with them. Turn the camera on and whatever happens will happen. And they gave us of their time and communicated and manifested a state when you know that you die. And one of those people was Ram Das, the spiritual teacher uh, that we went to see in Hawaii. And he, uh, I remember first going to film him and he gave us, he gave us a speech, you know, like, he has a kind of, uh, he's renowned and all that. So he has like the, he expects people are filming him. So he gave us the standard kind of Ramda speech. <laughs> so, so we went back and we reviewed this material. It was useless for us because there was nothing <laughs> new in it. So I thought, how can we make Ramdas reveal something to us, something real? And I came up with the idea that, so the next time we saw him, I said, Ramdas, you please take us from the place of 
um, fear around death to a place of acceptance or peace. He said, sure. And, and I said, also, you don't have to speak. Uh, you can be silent or you can speak. So he said, okay. And then, uh, so we, and I said, okay, we will at first maybe a little meditation, like uh, you meditate, we meditate, and the camera will meditate. <laughs> he said, great. And then, so then we turn on the cameras and he, and this is the beginning of our film, this scene. It's seven minutes long and he's not saying anything. Just, but it's very electrifying. His silence is very powerful. And he's, so he's about this, you can trace his thought process and he's about to say something, then a plane flies over and then no more, then he takes a sip of water and this takes like seven minutes and then he says in this culture everyone is afraid of death and then silence because he, he had a stroke he had a stroke and it's hard for him to uh, speak uh, you know, in a fluent manner, which he used to do really well before the stroke, but after the stroke, as he put it, the word factory has been bombed. <laughs> so after silence, he said something along, he showed us, he showed us that we must go from here to here. So, yeah. So that's kind of uh, what my mom was saying. Love is the only thing that matters. So, um, <clears throat> my relationship with BBZ, I think, is can be divided into three phases. The first one was when I was shunning Mo and the first I described to you when I first met Hideyoshi. Then I stopped coming here for like 14 years. And then at some point I was really, really depressed. And I remember DBC, I felt I used to feel so great after chanting Kanzel. So I signed up for a Kesse. Do you all know what a Kesse is? Three months long period of staying here. And uh, I remember before I came here, a doctor saw me and says, you are depressed. I'm gonna give you a prescription. So he gave me Zoloft. <laughs> When you are you on it? <laughs> anyway, so it was good because it, that medication prevented me from going into like really dark places. So I came here while I was taking it. 
And I remember arriving here and I went to see Adarosh in the meeting room and he said, no, I said to him, I don't really feel so comfortable living in an institution. <laughs> and he says, this is not an institution. We live here. So like put me at ease uh, that way. Uh, and the, the Kese is a wonderful uh, opportunity to practice because you get a session and then normally after session we go to the city or somewhere the, your normal life and things get confused there and the session energy kind of dissipates quickly in most cases and but with Kese it's sort of like half session in the downtime and so the energy from the first session doesn't dissipate quite as much and it continues it's like three or four hours of sasan every day so it continues until the next session so then it gets you go deeper and then again after that one slightly you know diminished normal life more or less and then another session the third one so so for me it was uh, very the first case i remember after the first month i thought um my serotonin level is really rising <laughs> so I, I reduced the dose of zoloft uh, by like one third and then after the second month again more serotonin so I feel like even without that additional zone, it's still rising. So as a result, at the end of that case, I was off that drug and never, I never felt the need to take it again. And I was so enthusiastic. I uh, signed up for another case immediately afterwards and another one. But then my mom got sick and I couldn't continue. But Eidaroshi encouraged me to become a monk. He said, this much hair separates you from being a monk. <laughs> but I never decided to become a monk because I had this other life as an artist and I, I couldn't give it up. And now I'm maybe questioning whether that was the right decision or not. But uh, at that time, that's what I thought. So because becoming a monk is a tremendous uh, responsibility and it's like you dive in 100% into this one thing. But I had uh, this other thing, so I felt like, I felt in my mind, I remember making calculations. I feel like it's 51% artist, 49% monk. <laughs> So those of you who are monks, I'm so full of uh, envy and admiration. Uh, yes. Shingaroshi told me that it's okay, there's silence. So maybe let me think about what I, what I have to say next.
kind of a master is it that is hearing the sound of the rain. I remember after Eidoroshi told me to shout moon, I took the practice to the city. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was shouting in my apartment. And this lady who was underneath me became really incensed to the point where she was recording me <laughs> with outside the apartment and then took me to court. <laughs> so in court she played that recording. <laughs> The judge, the judge was trying to mediate the keenness. Maybe you can lower the. I think I covered pretty much everything. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. And I'm mm, looking forward to the rest of the session. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.